All right. I hope we're broadcasting now. I lost my ability to hear there for a minute. So, Dante, are we, am I on the air? Yep, you guys are live. Okay, I am. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Let's go to the phones and joining us, as he does quite often, Austin Parr. Good morning, Austin. Good morning, Terry. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for coming on. It's uh, I know you do a lot of hunting. We're going to talk mostly fishing today, but uh, it's got to be a tough time of the year for you. Man, there's so many different options. We mention it every year about this time where we have all of our great fall fishing starting to materialize, but then opportunities with the waterfowl, upland game just around the corner, and most certainly big game options. But it's a great time to be a sportsman out west. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, this cooler weather, we keep talking about it. I firmly believe that most of what's going on is one or two weeks behind because we had such warm weather. But we're getting more, we're getting cooler and cooler nights, less time of daylight, and now another cool spell coming in. I think the, the fishing and the hunting should just get better and better. I 100% agree, and that's exactly what we're seeing when it comes to these temperatures right now on a lot of these metro bodies of water uh a lot of these fish particularly at catfield at least have been suspended out in these main basin areas and that little bit uh warmer water temperature still seeing temps in the, the mid to high 60s in the afternoon but that's not quite enough to drive them deeper onto these structure points and with the lack of shad that we've seen out there this year they've been very suspended they're they're around trying to to chase what bait fish are around in the in the water column, but uh, there's not a ton of concentration of them, so it's been much more of a trolling pattern out there. But we're likely to see some of those fish start to react and get to those deeper structure points as we can lose a little bit more temperature out there and we can get some of these cooler nights. I think the reason the trolling bite is probably not because there's huge amounts of bait fish they're following. It's probably because the fish are just so spread out, you have to cover water to find them. Is that what you're thinking? Exactly what I'm thinking at the moment. So, uh, you know, you're driving around, you might find fish here or there on the structure points, but uh, a lot of these fish are suspended down 20 to 25 feet of water in the main basin areas. So trolling to those fish with lead core or snap weights has been a lot better. And uh, definitely a slower troll pattern. I've been doing well at about 1.5 miles an hour. But when you get your line set correctly at those depths, it's a pretty fast-paced bite right now. But if you sit in one spot and try and dig to some of those fish, particularly when they're disconnected from the bottom, it can be pretty frustrating when you'll see them come through on that graph and they're just not biting. So running your bait through that, uh, those, those schools of fish at those depths at that 20-25 foot range has been definitely uh, the key element. Uh, and covering ground, as you mentioned, also is key. And if you're out there early in the morning, you can also run trolling lines for some trout. There's been a lot of nice rainbows up at the surface uh, rising. There's still been quite a few cronum and hatches that have been coming off. And dropping a Tasmanian devil or a castmaster behind a board as you are trolling around for those uh, walleyes can be exceedingly effective. And then one other little thing we're seeing is a lot of the weed growth is starting to disconnect and float around on the surface. So I've been putting uh, empty snap weight clips on my lead core lines and halfway down in between my board and my lure. And what that does is it catches those weeds as they come down the line and prevents them from getting onto your lure so you can have a little bit cleaner run. And that's been pretty imperative depending upon the direction of the wind 
there's been a lot of those weeds that are floating around, and they'll run right down the, the line from your planter board or from your lead core rod. What type of presentations are you using? What type of baits? Original shad wraps have been very good in the balsa forms. Those guys have a little bit lighter uh, wobble to them. I've also been doing well on uh, 3.5 salmos. Uh, some on the fours also have been productive, but some of the uh, the more jointed style lures have not been quite as productive. I've been looking for a non-jointed, a little bit less roll. Haven't run a lot of flicker shads, but those run right along the same lines as those original floater, excuse me, those uh, original shad wraps. Um, and those have been, been very productive, so I imagine some flicker shads have been good. Dartruces have been definitely effective. And then uh, some chrome and with pink accents, particularly in the Salmos. There's one color called Rockstar that has been very worthwhile um, down on those same type of patterns. And then on my planer boards, uh, I mentioned the Tasmanian Devils and the Castmasters early, but we have had some success. Long lining, chartreuse, um, also, like I said, the same color, but those chartreuse shad wraps on a longer line, getting them down a little bit more earlier in the water. Earlier in the day, those fish are higher in the water column. You can get those fish uh, to react to that bait at about 120 or 130 back. But then as the sunlight uh, gets a little bit higher into the sky, fish drop down a little bit more, and those planter boards become less and less effective. All right, what us switch over to Cherry Creek. What are you seeing over there? So those fish have been starting to be caught on reactionary presentations. There are, it's the exact opposite of Chatfield where there's just almost unlimited bait fish. So trying to fish an area where those walleyes push those bait fish through may be better than trying to find a pot of fish just because they're on the move all the time. Trolling patterns have certainly been effective, but a lot of times the bigger fish are coming on those reactionary bites like a jigging wrap or a blade bait. I'll set up on areas that are adjacent to the main basin with drop-offs. So on the western side where you have the roadbed that runs north or south, also on the very northeastern side of the lake near the power hump. Uh, they, they concentrate fish where they'll push from the depths of the basin up onto the top of those structures. And if you're in the area, uh, it's not nearly as fast paced as you find earlier in the season, but you can work. Like if I have one, two guys in my boat, I'll have one person fishing a jigging wrap, the other fishing a blade, maybe even a jigging spoon in there too. But you'll work yourself around until you find a pattern, and you'll likely – not catch fish for a while, and then all of a sudden you'll have a school come through, and you'll you'll pick off three or four of them in pretty short order, and then have to wait for that next school to to materialize. Before we move on to the mountains, have you heard anything about Pueblo? Pueblo can end up being an incredible place for jigging spoons and shad wraps and blade baits if the situation is right. Yeah, Pueblo is uh, doing pretty similar to how Catfield is doing when it comes to the trolling bite. That lead core pattern out off those cliff faces on the southern side of the lake has been very good. And the whole key is driving around, maybe even using your side imaging, but trying to find those big schools of fish first, identifying how deep they are, and then running your crankbaits right through. The Salmo Hornet seems to be the best crankbait down there. Um, there is a bait that is a white front with a red tail. It's called Bloody Tail. That bait in particular has been very productive on those trolling patterns. Uh, but the other thing that we have seen, um, there are a lot of times those, those big, those western greaves have started to move in down there, and they've been pushing some of those bait fish up into the back of those your coves. And there's been quite a bit of activity on top water, uh, particularly for smallmouth and an occasional wiper. So if you can find some of those coves that are lined with bait fish and birds, They've been very productive on the uh, the, uh, the wipers and those smallmouth. Seems like those walleyes 
are out in the main lake a little bit more than they are pushed up into the coves. And there has not been a great spooning or digging that bite go quite yet. Uh, I've been hearing a few reports of people catching fish on the, the deeper edges of the big bait fish schools, but in particular the trolling has been the, the better bet to catch numbers of fish. Do you think we're seeing the same thing we are at Chatfield, where maybe it's a little behind? Because normally by the time we get to October, there's a pretty good spooning or uh, jigging uh, reaction bite at Pueblo, not only for walleyes, but everybody else joins in, the wipers, the even the catfish. Do you think yep. it's just behind we'll still see that? I do think we'll still see that. The water temperatures are still hovering around 70 degrees, and I think we're just dealing with, with water that just has not cooled enough to really get those bait fish to drop down to those structure areas, and they're just still suspended. So I think it's uh, still maybe a few weeks out. Well, you know, if the water's still 70 degrees, that lake probably hasn't turned over yet, and there could be a, quite a variation of oxygen from top to bottom. That might be prohibiting it some, too. I definitely agree, and I mean, we just haven't seen those really cold nights yet. So as soon as we get some of those fronts pushed through, I think that all of these fall bites are going to, to hit good. And I mean, right now we've dealt with some additional moisture and a small cold front here, but the nighttime temperatures still aren't really that much down from about 50 degrees. So I think we need to get some freezing temps before that's going to really get going. But in the meantime, maybe pulling some cranks is going to be your best bet. What about the mountains? What are you hearing for trout, kokanee, anything like that? Mountain bites have really started to get going lately. Uh, up out of Blue Mesa on the Gunnison River, there's been some fantastic kokanee moving up right now. Uh, also some brown trout following. So that bite usually is the first kokanee spawn that, that really gets going in the state, and it's been going in pretty full throttle from everything, all the reports that I'm hearing, San Juan worms and egg patterns on the fly rods, distance through those schools has been very good. But then also on the conventional side of things, working some ice fishing speed jigs under a split bobber down through there and the bright pink colors, the oranges and, and some of the mixtures of the two have been very worthwhile. Now, uh, some of the regulations are pretty strict down there. I'm not extra, uh, I'm not very privy to that, but definitely confirming that on the regulations brochure before you're harvesting any fish down there is definitely what you're going to want to be doing. But then shifting up into South Park, uh, the kokanee fish started to go up on the dream stream. There's not giant numbers of browns or kokanee up there, but there are a few fish. The residents have been being caught up there too. Mentioning some of these warmer conditions, there's still been some decent dry fly activity on the middle fork up there. So if you want to get away from the crowds on the dream stream stretches, maybe working up uh, into some of the other state wildlife areas can be uh, a worthwhile bet and or some of the beaver ponds on the north side of the valley. I love those this time of year. The brook trout really are lit up up there, and, and if you're careful about not walking over all the reds, you can have some fantastic fall fishing on some beautiful colored-up fish and, and avoid some of the crowds up there also. I'll tell you, Karen and I were up doing a little bit of just more personal scouting than anything and looking at the elk and seeing where they were doing this week and also went to some streams. So the brook, you're right, the brook trout are lit up, and I wasn't fishing, but I could get up to the stream and see the sides of these fish. And I don't know if there's anything more beautiful than a fully lit up male brook trout. It, how can nature make those colors look so incredible? They look like they're almost hand-painted. I know. I mean, it's some of my favorite time of the year to go target those. And although you're not finding giant brook trout in most cases, uh, you can have really good action of the fish. They're, they're very willing to eat. And as you mentioned, what they may lack in size, they certainly 
make up for in the beauty of not only themselves but also the surroundings. You can have this beautiful country up there, and, and when those leaves are changing on some of the edges of those beaver ponds, it's a beautiful place to be on a nice fall afternoon. And I love beaver pond fishing, and you can go with a fly rod or you can go with a conventional rod. And if you get into those where the brook trout are just prolific, it can be action after action. And you look at the regulations for where you're fishing because a lot of these places actually have too many brook trout, and it doesn't hurt you, especially if you're camping, tent camping, to take a couple for the frying pan. As beautiful as they are, they're also really tasty and prolific, and a lot of those areas could benefit from taking a few brook trout. Now, if you're getting into 14, 15, 16-inch brook trout, release those. Keep those genetics out there. But, you know, you're getting some 8, 10-inchers. There's nothing wrong with harvesting a few of those either, Austin. I totally agree. And we preach selective harvest all the time. And in the right circumstance, keeping some of those smaller fish really can benefit the fishery, as you mentioned. But then also, as you mentioned, I'll reiterate it, any of the larger trophy-sized fish, and when it comes to brook trout, that's a 13 to a 16-inch fish. Uh, letting those fish go and keeping those smaller ones can be pretty worthwhile. Yeah, and those beaver ponds are pretty easy to fish, so you don't have to have a lot of expertise. You know, just kind of stay a little bit away from the edge, and most, you know, a, a generic fly works a lot of the time, or a little jig, or just so many ways to fish them. And if you're using a light rod, like a two- or three-weight fly rod, or a uh, an ultralight spinning rod, it's still uh, all the fun in the world. Sometimes Getting a lot of action is just as important or even more fun than catching that hunting all day for that one giant fish. <clears throat> Any other, the kokanee thing, by the way, I want to circle back on that. I have done those kokanee on a fly rod. In fact, there is a, a video about it where we're fishing that on the best of fishing with Terry Wickstrom Outdoors in the Gunnison, if you want to look at that. But a lot of that is catch and release only. A lot of times you have to ask, uh, a landowner if you can access the, the stream by them because and they don't really care because they don't mind you fishing for the kokanee but while you're fishing for those kokanee the rainbows and browns that are chasing kokanee eggs can be phenomenal too and i've had mixed bags of course it was all catch and release of some incredible fishing and you get a good sized kokanee coming out of blue mesa up the gunnison and you hook into that dinosaur-looking fish with a light fly rod, and you've got everything you want to handle it. It's really fun fishing. Austin, before we let you go, any any last comments before we let you go? You know, this time of year, as I mentioned, is one of the best times to get out. And my my comment is, don't get distracted by the hunting too much because we're going to be having some great fall fishing all across the board, and and great opportunities in all of these uh, mountain and front range fisheries. Well, you know, a great thing to do a lot of times is take a rod with you while you're hunting because usually you, yes. a big game, you usually hunt early in the day and late in the evening. And if you try to hunt midday, you get distracted and frustrated and sometimes blow out your hunt. Find a little beaver pond that's out of your animal's range but close enough for you to and do a little fishing. The time will go faster and it'll feel like a more rewarding day. Austin, if people want more information, how do they find you? I'm at Discount Fishing Tackle. We're six blocks south of Evans on the west side of Santa Fe. All right, my friend. We will talk to you soon. Thank you so much. You bet. That's Austin Parr. Always a great resource. Uh, it just has so much information. You need to stop by and talk to him. You know, there are a lot of bites going on. And I mentioned that um, we have the video of the uh, Kokanee with fly rod on the best of fishing with Terry Wickstrom. Now the best of fishing with Terry Wickstrom is legacy video from our 22 seasons of television, but a lot of it was shot right here in your backyard. Some of it we travel 
We go to Alaska. We go to Costa Rica. We go to the corners of the country. But a lot of it was shot right here. And we have a lot of good information that still applies. Uh, Another one that we have on there that's going to be coming up here in our next segment is the the lake trout, the October lake trout bite at at Granby. We're going to cover that next. And the white bass that we talked about, we have one on that at Boyd. So lots of the best of fishing with Terry Wickstrom on YouTube. All right, we're going to take a time out. When we come back, Dan Shannon from Fishing for Bernie will join us, and we're going to talk about that October bite. One of my favorite times in Granby on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN. Normally, we'll be over at the fan from 9 to 11, but when we have a football game conflict, we move over here to ESPN from 10 to noon. Let's go to the phones. Joining us from Fishing with Bernie is Dan Shannon. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Terry. You know, you're headed into or getting in probably into one of my favorite times of the year, and I'll admit that in the past, I used to, Love to fish Granby early spring when the big fish were shallow yet. I love to ice fish it, but I used to really love that fall bite when they moved in to stage to spawn. And not because I thought I'd get big fish, because it was, you could catch a big fish, but it was a numbers game where you catch a bunch of eaters, but the action was steady. And boy, if you want to take somebody fishing who doesn't go a lot, what an opportunity. So is that stuff gearing up? Yeah, we're just getting started with that bite. You know, the water is starting to cool. It just hit 60 degrees, and the fish are, are staging to spawn right now, kind of on that, that first step just before their spawning ground. So, you know, we're really, we're getting really, really close to the actual spawn, but there's still plenty of fish to be caught right now. How deep are they now? When you say the water surface is 60, lake trout really can't survive for any period of town over 55. Two-part two question. Is this a little late for it to be this warm yet? And where, how deep are they staging? Actually, right now, I think we're a little cooler than we were last year at this same point. So um, we're probably right on track with the, with the more normal year. And we're finding fish between 35 and 65 feet right now. So they're kind of just on that first step before they bump up into the shallow, shallow spawning spots. Um, when you go after these fish, are, do you just concentrate on the numbers or are you still looking for big fish? Uh, this time of the year, we pretty much uh, leave the big fish to go off and do their spawning thing, and we're out after playing the numbers game, and, you know, we're getting lots of bites in a day and putting a bunch of fish in the boat, and, you know, it's a, it's a real good time, nice and relaxing, and, and the rod's bent most of the day. Yeah, you know, it is a numbers game. I mean, sometimes I hate to almost say how many of these numbers fish when this bite starts going into October, but it's a phenomenal amount of fish if everybody's tuned in, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, the bites are still light. They're, they're lake trout. And, you know, if you're not hooking up and putting, putting fish in the boat, you're, you're getting plenty of bites, plenty of opportunities to, to hook up. Now, compared to what you might fish during the other parts of the year when you might be targeting more big fish, do you change your presentation or is there a, a numbers type presentation that you tend to use year round or especially now? Uh, we kind of change our presentations a little bit. You know, spawning fish aren't as eager to actually eat stuff, but they they are pretty eager to attack things that are irritating them, kind of like like kokanee when you're they're not really eating when they're spawning. They're just more more attacking out of aggression. I think the lake trout are real similar. So we change our baits up a little bit. We'll get get more of the more aggressive baits. So a lot of spoons. Uh, we still throw some tubes and some soft plastics in there and lets it grubs. But sometimes I'll throw like an underspin 
for the jig head instead of instead of uh, just a plain old lead head. And you know that's become more common, maybe in the last well, probably ten years. But if you went back into the '90s on Gramby, that spawn bite was almost strictly people fished it with smaller tubes or maybe a a curly tail grub. But we've really come to understand these fish more, and you guys have really really zeroed in on what it takes to get them to bite, haven't you? Yeah, we do. We do pretty good most days. You know, it's always fishing, but. Uh... I think we've got a pretty good pattern set up with kind of getting away from trying to feed them those natural presentations and getting a little more aggressive and trying to just irritate them and get them to get that reaction kind of bite. Now, during this time, most of the fish probably run 14 to, what do you think, 22 inches with a kind of a concentration in that 16, 18-inch range. But those are perfect yep. if, you want to, if, if you want to keep a couple, aren't they? Absolutely. That's kind of our, that's our target range for keeping fish out here. Fish 19 inches and under are kind of, are the perfect eater. And, you know, that's, uh, those, those are good to get out of, get out of the lake because there definitely a good number of them in here that kind of just helps the overall health of the fishery. Well, and that's just it. If you know your fishery, there's nothing wrong with harvesting some fish. Just harvest the right ones. If you get that 30 or 40 inch lake trout, it took it decades to grow. Keep those genetics in the lake. Let it go. They don't taste as good anyway. Keep two to four of those eater-sized fish. They taste good. You can fry them. You can fillet them. And this time of the year, the action is so steady, and it's just going to get better. Will this become a bite that shore anglers can take advantage of as we progress? It will. As this water cools, those fish are going to move up into that pretty solidly into the 30, 35-foot range, and there's definitely plenty of spots uh, all along the lake where a shore angler can get get at those fish. You know, you look at the areas along Canyon Road 6 on the south shore of the lake, uh, along Inspiration Point, some of the rockier areas where the where the water drops off pretty quickly. There's definitely some, some areas where shore anglers can get out and have some success. Uh, any difference in the presentations you'd recommend from shore? Um, I think I'd go where we're fishing vertically. We're usually using a heavier spoon. I would lighten up my spoon so it can, can uh, flutter and kind of slowly fall. And I would just work it kind of in a popping retrieve up back as you're as you're retrieving it and kinda of lifting it up, letting it flutter down. Lift it up, let it flutter down and you know, you're still getting able to get that reaction type of bite without being vertically on top of them. All right. So what else is before we let you go, what else is going on around the area? So besides Granby, you know, Grand Lake and Shadow, we've got uh Kokanee starting to move around and, and all the lakes. Uh Williams Fork. The uh the boat ramp is closed now to motorized boats, so those uh, anglers that are out there with uh, kayaks and non-motorized, it's a great opportunity to get out in the Williams Fork and get a, get a fall bite and almost have the lake to yourself. Uh, you know, as we, as we keep moving in in the later fall, the, the kokanee bite at Wolford is going to be, I think it's going to be a good one this year. It seems to be pretty good numbers out there. Um, as far as the, the people who are out jigging uh, earlier in August here when they were all schooled up. So I think overall the fall up, up in Grand County is looking to be spectacular. Uh, speaking of boat ramps, what's the situation for the boat ramp at Granby? So Granby, the hours right now, their uh, sunset boat ramp is about to close. They're going to have still water ramps going to stay open until the end of November. Uh, the hours are 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. Um, and it was, it, it, they have inspectors there and ready to launch boats. It's been super cold in the morning, so come on, be prepared to uh, wear a couple layers or bring a jacket. And, you know, fishing, like with the temps being what they are. Uh, fishing should get nothing but better in a hurry. Yeah, and I get 
Um, I know fishing that bite several times. I'm pretty bundled up when we start, and I'm down sometimes to a T-shirt by the afternoon. But it's, uh, it really warms up when the sun comes out. Before we let you go, if people want to book a trip with you, Dan, how do they find you? You can find us on the Internet at fishingwithbernie.com. Uh, get a hold of us through through Facebook at Fishing with Bernie or reach out to me directly on my cell, 303-956-3804, and we'll get you set up with a guide and get you out on the water and have a good day. Well, I'll tell you what, if you just want to catch fish, folks, this time of the year on Gramby, and if you don't know what you're doing, go with the guide the first couple times because once you learn where these spawning fish set up and how to go after them, it can be one of the most prolific bites and fun times, if, especially if you want to take a group of anglers. A couple of years ago, I took my my son and my grandson and my son-in-law out, and I didn't even fish. And they, I don't know how many fish they caught, but they had a blast. Dan, thanks for joining us. Great information as always. Hey, thanks, Terry. All right, that's uh, Dan Shannon. Let's go back to the phones again. And joining our, our, our one of our favorite partners, he's got Elkwoods Insurance, is Sean Early. Good morning, Sean. Hey, you know what? I'm doing great, and I know this time of the year challenges you. I got a couple quick questions for you, though. One is, I know you passed up archery hunting that you normally do to do a rifle hunt with your dad, which I think is so phenomenal. You guys are going to create memories. It's going to be so much fun. But has it been tugging at you a little bit? Absolutely. I stare at my bow every day and think, man, I can go get that tag, and I can go this weekend. Yeah, so it's been tough. We're having a little time here, trouble hearing you, but I know that's been bothering you. The other thing I know is you were flying over the mountains, and when you fly over the mountains, I know you love to fly. Um, do you get? Do you still get in awe of the amount of open space in Colorado? Absolutely. Um, just recently took a trip from here in Broomfield to Moab um, in a Cessna 172. And we flew over Rollins Pass and then just kept going over Eagle and Grand Junction and then landed in Moab. But there were so much open space. And I was talking with the buddy I was flying with, like, I wonder if there's areas in Colorado that have still never been touched by a human foot. Yeah, you know, when I've flown over the state in different, whether it's been commercial or private, you just almost get in awe because there's a couple areas over on the West Slope and then here on the Front Range, you get out of that area and there's a lot of open land. And you just think about the outdoor opportunities this state has. It's pretty incredible and uh, it's incredible to live here. But the people that live here, my friend, need insurance. And if they want to be out in the field, you're going to shop it for them, aren't you? I am. So I am partnered up with 14 great A-rated carriers for your personal insurance. And so all I need from you guys is just the information, current declarations pages, or your VIN numbers and your driver's license numbers. And then I can take that information while you're in the field, shop it with those 14 carriers, and then send you an email with the best option that I find for you. All right. That's always, and you're going to do that with uh, conscientiously and with honesty, and you treat everybody like family. We're so glad to have you as a partner. Uh, I know that this archery season has been tough for you, but it's going to be all made up for when you and your dad are out in a hunt together. Thanks for joining I'm us. I'm looking my forward to it. How, many, how do people find you, by the way? So all my contact information can be found at www.elkwoodsinsurance.com. All right, my friend. You go out and enjoy yourself. We'll talk to you again in a, in a while.
All right. Have a good one. Thank you. You bet. That's Sean Early with Elkwoods Insurance. Just go to elkwoodsinsurance.com. You know, I my insurance is through one of his companies, and I have tremendous rates. It's been fantastic. I have my boat, my truck, my Jeep, and my house all insured through Safeco. So let's take a time out. We come back. One of our favorite people, J.R. Pierce, is going to join us, and we have lots of tips for keeping your gun performing right during these hunting seasons on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors broadcasting today on ESPN. If you like what you've been hearing here on the show, you can usually catch us from 9 to 11 on the fan. We bop over here to our sister station when we have a football game conflict or something. We love it over here. And speaking of people we love, we're joined now by one of our one of our favorite contributors, J.R. Pierce from Colorado Clays. Good morning. Well, good morning, Terry. You know, I was thinking, J.R., you get all types of shooters. You get shotgun, upland game, you get competitive, you get rifle, you get handgun, and you get every level of expertise from beginner to even a competitive shooter. And you get, you were talking to me earlier in the week and you said every one of those people at times has issues and a lot of them come back, whether they're firearms, mechanical issues, performance issues, a lot of it comes down to the maintenance of their firearm. And Terry, you're so right. And you know, through the course of the year, we do service uh, tens of thousands of people, rifles, pistols, and shotguns for, uh, you know, different things from target, uh, competitive shooting, uh, and preparation for hunting, which is really the one that's been going on here lately. And one of the big issues we do see is just proper cleaning of rifle, pistol, or shotgun. And the reason, Terry, that this is so important is that, you know, lubricated surfaces provide many benefits to firearms. And the first and most obvious is wear. Uh, The purpose of oil on the moving parts on a firearm is the same as in your automobile. It's going to reduce friction and wear. But there's more to it than, than, than just that, Terry. Um, oftentimes just, you know, oiling your gun on the non-moving parts will enhance the cosmetics and keep it looking good, and it can improve your resale value. So something to consider there. Uh, many firearms will not function prump- properly or as easily if they're not lubricated. example would be, say, a pump-action shotgun, um, your re- revolver pistol, a bolt gun, a uh, break-action gun, just simple cleaning will fix issues. Um, I have seen pump guns that were so dirty and, and uh, you know, not maintained that would not come all the way back in cycle or that were just a pain to, um, you know, ma- manipulate the pump. Uh, revolver guns, and in the event you ever did need to or want to reload them fast, a dirty gun is just a complete pain and doesn't work well. I have seen bolt-action rifles um, that just actuating the bolt was a chore in itself, which is not good for the gun. It's not safe and can be fixed by simple cleaning. And, of course, brake guns or anything that has surface-to-surface will benefit from some lubrication. Um, on the note, like semi-automatics, and it doesn't matter if it's a rifle, a pistol, or a shotgun, um, can malfunction and short-cycle due to lack of lubrication. So one of the things I will tell people is make sure you also use the proper type 
and viscosity of lubrication. Uh, I've had a few instances in cold weather situations where uh, not using the proper oil or weight of oil actually would cause the gun not to cycle as quickly as it should. I've seen one instance where it took one shot and it looked like everything was in slow motion because the oil was so thick. So another problem, of course, is old grease or lubrication. It's definitely worth purchasing the proper one designed for guns because the negative effects are only enhanced as the temperature drops, and that's what's happening when the you know hunters go out into the field. And, Terry, there's a lot of missed opportunities each year due to just that lack of basic firearms maintenance. Well, one of the things I do with Karen and I shoot a lot of semi-automatic handguns, and I use, you know, there's products out there. I won't go into brands. There's a lot of good ones because I don't consider myself an expert. But I like to get an all-in-one oil and cleaner. I may use a stronger cleaner inside the barrel. But then most of the action I'll do with the all-in-one cleaner because I want to make sure that once I get a clean, there's some lubricant everywhere. But on some parts, then I will take a real fine gun oil and make sure I get a light amount on the moving parts, especially slides. One of the things I found out, too, is you really have to understand your firearm. I shoot a lot of Smith & Wesson M&Ps, and they actually run really well dry. They're made to be in the severe conditions and still go bang. But you do get more wear, obviously, if they're not lubricated properly. Karen shoots a Sig Sauer, and hers tends to operate a lot more smoothly and a lot consistently if it's a little more wet with lubricant. So you have to understand your firearm, too. Absolutely, Terry, and there is a wide variety of lubricants available. I always recommend following the manufacturer's recommendations for their particular firearm when that recommendation is made. Uh, When not, do a little research. When you go in, check them. See if they have any specific use things. See if they have temperature ranges. And, uh, you know, just find out. There are particular, um, you know, specs on different oils, just like there are for automobile and other types of stuff. And make sure you're getting the good stuff that's going to work for the firearm you have, and it's definitely going to pay dividends um, for the life of your firearm. Yeah, you can be, you can get things so screwed up if you use the wrong one. You know, another thing, though, that people sometimes think is mechanical Uh, because it doesn't function right, or they just have issues where it's not working right, or they're just having issues with accuracy, and that can be the ammo they use, and that's true on almost any gun, too. Yeah, Terry, and I'll tell you what, this is one that we've been seeing here, and particularly for the rifle hunters preparing, we've been seeing uh, lately uh, some as equipment malfunctions and some as others. So, uh, you know, as we've said before, Terry, the number one uh, problem people have is a loose scope. Um, and a lot of times, you know, that you need to check those screws. They will loosen over time with shots. Uh, the best way to um, do that is use a proper torque specification and get your scope mounted that way. I do see some people using a semi-permanent Loctite um, so that they don't run into that issue after they do fire their gun, um, practicing getting ready for season. Uh, now, as far as, like you said, the most accurate load, most guns, and particularly rifles, um, have favorite loads. And many guns are finicky, and it can take a bit of time and effort to find the load that's most accurate in a given gun. And that 
accuracy can be affected by a lot of things with a particular load. Uh, muzzle velocity, for one, is very important. Oftentimes people will see that in itself changes uh, you know, points of aim, points of impact, and overall accuracy. The bullet weight you choose um, in a given gun, some of them like heavier, some like lighter, but you're also just um, relying on the gun to tell you what bullet weight it wants, what type of bullet it wants. Um, you know, uh, look for a good ballistic coefficient, which we won't go into, but its ability to cut through the air often can have an effect. And read up on that. You can find out which is going to have the best one for your particular gun, your caliber. And, of course, Terry, another one people don't think about, the temperature of your barrel. So always do your shots in groups and then let your barrel cool down. When we go into the field, chances are we're going to have one shot, maybe two. They are going to be on a cold barrel. Don't go down and run two boxes of ammo through your gun consecutive and think you've got it because that gun is going to perform different cold than it does hot. So definitely do uh, small groups and let your barrel cool down so that you know you're accurate on a cold barrel. Another thing, uh, a clean barrel versus a foul barrel, Terry, and I, as again, always follow those manufacturers' recommendations on cleaning process and intervals. Uh, some will tell you what to do, how many shots to take, and then at what interval to clean for your barrel to perform at its best. And, of course, one thing, Terry, i got to say this, um, a lot of people cut corners on things. They might try and save a buck here and there. Uh, most of these newer rifles are inherently accurate. And once you find that most accurate load, you can really only take advantage of it if you have a scope that suits the gun's abilities and the type of shooting you'll be doing. So some of the best money you can spend is on good glass. And uh, when I see people cutting corners on that, they are just shortchanging themselves. So definitely invest in a scope if you can. We always used to say if you have to split the money between your scope and your rifle, Spend more money on the optics because the rifle will probably perform. Um, one other thing, you know, people are picking out ammo. You mentioned a lot of things. Sometimes just the rifling in the barrel is different than another gun, the number of twists, and also the length of the barrel. And just because your buddy shoots a certain bullet that's extremely accurate for him, it may not be accurate for you. And we harp this over and over again. Don't only... Pick out a bullet that practice with, but practice with the load you're going to hunt with. Oh, very important, Terry. And you're right. And some of the same manufacturers and even model guns have barrels with different rifling twists and lengths available. And all of those barrels will and can perform differently with the same load. So what may work for your buddy's rifle um, don't assume that that's going to be the most accurate load or velocity in your gun. So some experimentation is definitely important, and don't assume that uh, guns are one the same next to the other. They're definitely not. And, you know, Taryn, that's really where Colorado Clays comes in because we do have, um, you know, the most expert staff in the industry. Uh, we have a state-of-the-art range, and you can come out here and dial yourself in for just a little bit of time that um, should be spent before you go in the field. We've only got a couple minutes left, but I want to cover one thing. Uh, waterfall seasons are getting underway, and a lot of people practice shooting clays with a lead shot. They shoot upland game with lead shot. Now it's waterfall season. You have to go to steel or non-toxic shot. Have you patterned much of that, and how much effect does it have? 
Well, that's a great point, Terry. And, you know, regardless of what type of shooting or hunting you're doing, absolutely the first step needs to be a visit to the Colorado Clays pattern area. Uh, and the first thing we need to establish is your point of aim versus your point of impact. And basically this is, is your pattern where you want it relative to your aim point. And if it's not, you can make adjustments to your gun or your gun fit to compensate. And uh, what I mean by that is um, if you're aiming dead center at a given range is your pattern. A 50-50 means half high, half low, half left, half right. Some people like a gun that shoots a little bit higher, uh, but most people have no idea where their gun shoots. So that is definitely the first step. A 25 to 30 yard is kind of the most common starting point because that's the yardages you're shooting. Many of your clay targets, uh, many of your jump shot birds are going to be in that mid-range, many of your decoy shots. So it's a good starting point. Now, as far as chokes, um, of course, choke selection is very important. It, uh, different degrees of constriction will change the size of your pattern at a given distance, So, which will also change, by the way, your pattern density with a given load. So when the number of pellets in your pattern doesn't change but the diameter does, the density of the pattern will change as well. Most people like to choose a choke that gives them the largest pattern at a given distance, largest diameter pattern, but enough pellets on their target to be effective at either breaking or bringing down the target. Now, one thing I will say, Terry, that I have found uh, in the lead versus steel um, is that it really can change the pellet distribution uh, meaning holes in your pattern larger than your target, so you could miss even if you were on. Uh, one other thing that really can change is I've seen some original equipment chokes with high-velocity steel that at 25 yards, we could not get more than two pellets on the size of a goose. We purchased a Briley choke, which was built for that gun and for that load, and actually be able to put four or five pellets on a goose-sized target at 70 yards. That much difference can literally be made by doing the research. So uh, the lead versus steel, we have to do what we have to do, but the performance is so much different. You really got to get out there, um, check what you have, and then potentially invest a little money and uh, increase your effectiveness at a bunch of different ranges. We are out of time, my friend. If people want to get a hold of you, where do they find you? Give us a call, 303-659-7117, or go to coloradoclays.com, check out our website, take the virtual tour, but by all means, get out and see us, Terry. All right, my friend, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay, That's, thanks. Uh, J.R. Pierce from Colorado Clays, great people out there, great facility. And these little things that you might spend a little money on can save a hunt that you've spent thousands of dollars. So don't skimp on it. We'll take a quick time out. We come back. We'll wrap up this edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors broadcasting today on 1600 ESPN. From 10 to noon, we normally are on the fan from 104.3, the fan from 9 to 11. Every now and then a, a contracted game comes up. We move over here. Now, if you can't get 1,600, uh, remember that we're online. Just go to denverfan.com, and both the fan and 1,600 will come up so that you can click and listen on your phone. You can listen on your computer. Um, either one of those will come up, and everything is podcast. In addition to 
we'll podcast them on denverfan.com. You go to my page, and you'll see both podcasts by the segment for each week, and then you'll see the full hour podcast in the same uh, page. But uh, we also take some of the more timely and critical uh, segments that are really we think are appropriate, and Karen or I will put them up on our Facebook page, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. So if you follow Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook, you'll know when we're going to switch station or schedule, and you'll get the opportunity to follow some of our podcasts. And our podcasts go back for months, years, I think, actually. So you can go back and revisit those anytime. Uh, so take advantage of that. Uh, there's some things going on out in the outdoor industry that we want to make sure you're aware of. We covered earlier that the Wyoming boat ramps, uh, Glendo and Keyhole, are both going to be doing uh, boat inspections, and both of those reservoirs are going to be down to one boat launch so they can do inspections. There's been some fear. There was some uh, mussels found in uh, the Dakotas that are fairly close to those reservoirs, and we've had a mussel uh, Muscles found out on the west slope over in Colorado. So everybody's uh, extremely cautious about those things. So be aware. Glendo's on fire. The fishing is really good. I haven't heard a report from Keyhole, but I've done some really good fishing there. But if you're headed up to Glendo, not only are you going to have to stop at the entry to the state if it's open, but when you get there, you're going to have to go to that single boat ramp and have your boat inspected. So be aware of that. I know Brad Peterson has already posted it on his social media at Brad Peterson Outdoors. So I don't know whether we'll get to post it or not, but you'll find it there. Uh, in Pueblo, the marina on the north side has actually been shut down because of electrical hazard potential. Now, the boat ramp is still open, but the marina itself is not functioning. So there's no uh, they were just afraid of a shock hazard there. If you ever wanted to catch fish. Just to go up, the October bite at Granby is just one of the most prolific bites in the state. And you're talking fish that will range from 14 inches up to, you might catch a 30-some incher, but typically this time of the year, you're into the smaller uh, spawning fish that are like 14 to 22 inches. And the action, I'm talking 30, 40, 50 or more fish a day. The light bite takes a little bit to learn about it. But gosh, is it fun. I love going up there. And if you've got people you want to take out that don't get the fish very often, if you don't feel competent or understanding of that bite, get a hold of the guys from Fishing for Bernie like Dan Shannon and go out once with them this time of the year. You'll learn enough to take your own boat up in coming years and just have, I used to plan at least one, if not two trips every year to, uh, to go up there and do that. Follow us on our social media and don't forget about our music. Wickstrom and Dobreth. We're going to be releasing a new single, It Is Done. We're just waiting on the photo shoot for the covers. Uh, I'm excited, but our existing EP that has four songs is streaming almost everywhere right now. All you have to do is uh, just search Wickstrom and Dobreth, and it'll come up. If you search just Wickstrom, you get, or Terry Wickstrom, you just get about 500 of the podcasts of my radio show. But Wickstrom and Dobreth will get you that music. Follow us on Facebook. Join us. Every, every Saturday on either The Fan or ESPN. And if you love this show, let us know. Follow us on Facebook. And uh, I want to thank Dante for keeping us on the air in the ESPN studios. I want to thank Karen for putting this show together and 
slapping me around once in a while, keeping me in line. Actually, she's really nice to me, even when I make a mistake. But we'll let the Eagles take us to the top of the hour in sports on ESPN. <laughs> 